If you have a Bible with you, if you want to find the book of Ecclesiastes uh, and Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're looking, uh, we've been going through a series which we've called uh, Wisdom for a World that Refuses to Make Sense. And so often that's how we feel when we look around at either our own lives or the world around us. We think, this doesn't make sense. Uh, so much of what we see in the world refuses to add up. Um, and we can struggle as believers, or maybe you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus, we can struggle to know how to navigate through life when everything can seem so chaotic sometimes. And particularly today, we're going to talk about the theme of evil and oppression and uh, injustice and where we find true justice. And particularly when we look over the last year of our lives and we see so much evil in the world, even in the last week, watching the news and seeing what's happening in Israel and in the Gaza Strip and struggling to make sense of it all, struggling to ask why and where does this lead to and what's the point? When we think of the brutal murder last year of George Floyd and all the profound pain and angst that was voiced after that. And we can hear those stories, we can see their news, and we can be, we can feel the weight of all those questions. We can feel the pain and the torment that we see around us and not know what to do with it all. But fortunately, well not fortunately, but by the blessing of God, he's given us his word and he's given us his son, Jesus. And within all of that is wonderful good news. So I'm going to read this passage to us. Chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. We're going to read the whole thing. And then we'll pray and get into and see what we can learn from these words today. Okay, it says this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not, se not seen the evil deeds that are done unto the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. 
But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For when he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom that he'd been poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Lord Jesus, we pray as we look at these words together, would you speak to us? Thank you that you are a God who speaks. You primarily speak through your word. So we want to open our hearts up to you this morning and say, would you speak? Come have your way in our lives. Come help us to know more of your astounding, incredible, gracious, abundant love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If we go right back to the beginning of the Bible, you'll find the first, perhaps the first story, well, it really is the first story of oppression, of evil. You find in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve sin and God, God comes to them and speaks to them and he speaks to the snake who's led Eve into sin and says to her, or says to the snake, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And imagine Eve was probably living with that promise. Eve was living with this this dream that, that her seed, her offspring, would crush evil, would crush the enemy. That redemption would come through her. And she gives birth to Cain and Abel. Perhaps she's holding this promise in her heart. But the story of Cain and Abel, this is where the true evil seems to really be thrown into the world. Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God, but Abel's offering is found more acceptable. Cain gets angry. And God says to him, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. This idea of sin as this beast waiting to pounce. And that's what happens. Cain kills his brother, Abel, completely unjustly, without any warrant. He murders him. And God says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And I don't know, we don't learn in the passage in Genesis 4 what Adam and Eve must have thought of all of this, of Eve with this promise that through her seed, through her offspring, the enemy would be crushed, but instead the enemy seems to have had its way, that sin has shown its teeth, has brought such pain. And Abel's life seems pointless. He brings this good offering, but 
there's no reward for his obedience. He seems to have done everything right, and yet he's, he's murdered. And Cain gets to live instead. It's so unjust. And one way to understand the book of Ecclesiastes is we could almost read it as a commentary of this story. Because the key word as we go through Ecclesiastes again and again is this word which keeps being repeated. I saw vanity under the sun. If you remember right back to the beginning of the book, chapter one, verse one, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. And that word in the Hebrew is Hebel, Hebel, which has a connection back to Abel. Perhaps you could read the book and say, Abel, Abel, everything is Abel. Everything echoes back to this pointless, unjust murder, just the futility, just the, the kind of vapor of his life. It was there for a moment with so much promise and then gone. And chapter four seems to almost read as a, as almost like a detailed commentary of that, of that story, of a, an analysis of what's happened. We see four times the writer says, I saw, he says in verse one, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. In verse four he says, I saw all the toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor in the same way that Cain envied and then murdered his brother. In verse seven, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. We see this selfishness of life. And then at the end of the story, we see the, the, the fickleness of life, of this ruler and the king and the people that forget him and don't want to follow him. There's so much, there's so much evil in our world and the book of Ecclesiastes is wonderfully honest about that. That's what he says here. We're going to focus mainly on these opening verses where he says, I, I saw all the oppressions that were done under the sun. The tears of the oppressed. There was no one to comfort them. He could look back and see the, the oppression that, that happened to, to Abel. The pain and the anguish that must have caused. The feelings of just futileness, of meaninglessness, of pointlessness of that brutal murder. But the Bible doesn't just look backwards, but it looks forward. It, it speaks into our world today. And we can learn some things about evil and oppression from this, from this passage. First of all, we see that it's, in many ways, sadly, evil is, is historical. In chapter five of Ecclesiastes, the writer says this, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. It's an astonishing thing for the Bible to say. When you see oppression, violation of justice and righteousness, don't, don't be surprised by it. It's an incredible thing for the Bible to say, but it's an incredibly honest 
It's saying, look at the story of history. You know, even if we go back to, to Cain and Abel, but then it's only a few generations later that Lamech, one of their, their relatives, then, then brutally murders someone as well. And Adam and Eve had another son, Seth, hoping maybe through him. But again and again, you see this pattern of evil, of, of just the brutal mess of human life and our interactions with one another, just repeated again and again and again. If we look through our own history of the world we live in today, we see again and again stories which feel like repeats. Feels like we're just, we're on season five, but we could be back on season one again. We're just repeating the same old stories over and over. The Bible is real about that. Evil is historical. It keeps on happening. Also, it's, there's a societal angle to this. Evil affects not just individuals, but it affects society. It says here, on the side of their oppressors, there was power. There was power. Not only were there oppressors, but they, they, the power was on their side. Again, we see that in the world around us. Oppressors who seem to hold the power, the authority, those who are in positions of rulership and leadership. And again, Adam and Eve would have known this story. Adam and Eve, at the beginning of this, this story, they're, they're commissioned to have dominion over the whole earth. They're, they're told to have power, to have authority over all of nature, over all of creation, of everything that God's made. But after the curse, after the fall, we live with a, with a ruling and authority, a power that's now fallen, is tainted. And we see power structures around us emerge that use tools of manipulation, deception, injustice. It doesn't mean that all authority is bad. Because authority, power, they're not bad things. They're designed to be good things. Authority is designed to release, to bring life. That's what Adam and Eve were commissioned to do. And yet it can get tainted by evil and by sin. And the Bible recognizes that and speaks into that. Also, we learn that the evil is, is personal. It's personal. It talks here about the oppressors and their power, but then it goes on to say that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. It talks about the, this kind of global big picture of evil, but then draws us into a very personal, very individual, that all of us, whether we like to admit it or not, can carry envy in our hearts, can carry selfish desires, corruptness, that we all live under the sun, under the curse. And the biblical path to confront evil always begins within. Whenever we see injustice, it's so easy to point our fingers, to judge. And yet the Bible calls us first to address our own hearts, 
to look within, to see the sin inside ourselves and to come to him and receive forgiveness and restoration. Also, we see that evil is it's demonic. Evil is, is evil. And that might seem a strange concept to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. It might seem a bit of a fanciful kind of comic book idea. But I think sometimes when you see just some of the horrific things that happen around us, I often think there's no other way to re-understand it than to think, well, that, that surely must just be demonic. How, how could that happen? How could that level of hatred boil up in, in a man's heart? How could that happen? And the, the, the writer here seems to bear some of this, this anguish when he sees it. I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. It's an incredible thing for the Bible to say. That the dead are more fortunate than the living. But when you see the, just the true callousness, just the brokenness of our world sometimes, that's what we can be led to think. You hear people say, I don't, I don't want to have children because I don't want to bring them into this world of evil. It's, we're saying the same thing that the Bible is saying here, that some things appear so horrifically lost. And there's this crouching beast of sin waiting to devour. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul tells us that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. But there is evil demonic power behind so many things that we see around us. And so often we're, 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 we feel ourselves called into a, a battle against flesh and blood, as in a battle against people. We want to take down others. We want vengeance. Sometimes it's helpful to take a step back and think, well, what's really happening here? Who's really pulling the strings? And what's the solution to that? So what about justice? This story of oppression and evil can seem rather bleak. What about justice? Well, again, we can learn some things about it from this passage. First of all, we see that human justice, although not a bad thing to pursue, human justice is, is imperfect. You see, with power, there's always a paradox to it. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And our, our, our desire when we see people in power who are oppressors is we want to see them overthrown. We want to see new people in place. But again, if we look at the story of history or the story of the Bible, we see so often that the corruptive nature of power means we, we put the new, the goodies in place, but then they become corrupt. We need this, this political system will bring healing. And then when it's unleashed into the world, its flaws and its errors trip it up. And very quickly, those who've come to release the press to set the victims free themselves become the oppressors. As soon as they begin to wield power in the weakness of human heart, that desire for 
manipulation, for deception, for injustice, just pollutes it. And this, this book also tells us that there's a time for justice. In chapter 3, he writes, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. It's the hope that all followers of Jesus have. Is we know that God isn't silent on these issues. The Bible doesn't gloss over injustice and pain and evil and oppression. The Bible condemns it ferociously, but then says there's, there's one coming who will judge, that the wicked won't get away for it, with it forever, that justice is coming. In the book of Isaiah, there's many wonderful promises about what the bringer of justice, this Messiah, Jesus, what he'll bring. Says in chapter 60, all who despise you shall bow at your feet, that there's, a, there's an overturning that's going to come, a final perfect overturning, where, where the oppressors will have to bow, where, where all those powers are overthrown, where evil is done away with. But for many, that, that can sound... Perhaps that might sound to you like a bit of an excuse. That's, that, that's what Christians do. Is they say, well, there's pain and there's evil, but don't worry. One day in the future, God will wipe away every tear. All the mourning will cease. And, but Christians, they, just, they abdicate their responsibility to do anything now because they hold on to this future hope. And we can perhaps read passages like this in Ecclesiastes and just see them as just fatalistic. That we should just look at the world and see the evil around us, see that there's no one to comfort them and say, well, one day Jesus is going to do something. But there is hope now. There is good news now. There is a responsibility to act and to work now. Because you see, justice... Justice belongs to Jesus. Justice is, is his to work out and to give. And one day he will finally deliver his perfect justice and righteousness. But even now, he's at work. You see, another way to understand the book of Ecclesiastes is, is to see it as a, a messianic prophecy. What I mean by that is... is there are books in the Bible, the book of Isaiah, for instance, which is, it's, it's all about Jesus. It's telling us what this coming Messiah is going to be like. It's telling the people of God, your Savior is coming. This is what he's going to be like. And it paints this beautiful picture again and again of this suffering servant who's going to come to lead his people as their king. And Ecclesiastes does the same thing, but it does it mostly without talking about God at all. What it does is it shows us the true state of this world. It shows us what life is like under the sun, under the curse, and what our futile efforts, our striving after the wind, what they'll accomplish, not much. And in that, it says you need a saviour. Because our efforts by themselves will be so limited. 
that without God, there is so much pain. And it, it highlights our need for a saviour to come. And yet, the world around us, it wants to fight the fights. It wants to have the battles. It wants to put an end to all the injustice and oppression we see around us. But it, it doesn't want the Messiah. And that's, that's a problem. It is a huge problem. Because without Jesus, evil will remain historical. It will come again and again. It will keep infecting society again and again and again. It will keep being a personal thing that afflicts everybody again and again. The demonic power will not cease without the king. We need, we need Jesus. And even, even the instinct around us to see an end to evil and oppression, it, it's, a, it's a good thing. And it's, it's rooted in Christianity, actually. There's a, a writer called Tom Holland, not the uh, actor who played Superman, but a Spider-Man. Who played Superman? See, this is why we need people in the room, because they can, uh, when I get my Marvel quotes wrong. Anyway, Tom Holland, who wasn't, he's not Spider-Man or Superman. He's, a, he's a, a historian, not a Christian as far as I know. And he wrote a book uh, called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, basically going back through history and showing how, in the Western world at least, how Christianity has shaped how we think, how we do life, how our legal systems are built, how we administrate justice, how we practice ethics, that so much of it is rooted in Christianity. Even going back to the, how, how the first Christians entered Rome, and how they saw the brutality of the Roman Empire, how their idol worship had corrupted them and, and began to, to call out all the injustice, began to serve the poor and the vulnerable, began to change that city, and how we're called to do the same thing again and again. And Tom Holland, he, he comments on our society, and he says this, it's a very profound quote, particularly if you realize that he's not a believer in Jesus himself. He said this, wokeness has inherited so much from Christianity, a spirit that descends and opens people's eyes, the denunciation of sin, raising the oppressed. But what it lacks, and this is the important bit, what it lacks is forgiveness and the fact that we're all sinners. <laughs> Without that peace, Without remembering that, we're all sinners. And that we need a saviour to come to set us free. To forgive us our sins and help us to forgive others. There'll be no true healing without that. There'll be no restoration. There'll be no reconciliation. No, no true justice comes without the saviour coming. See, the, the kingdom of God is profoundly good news for everybody but particularly for the poor, again and again, for those who are broken, for those who are weak. The Bible speaks into those situations again and again and breathes life, breathes hope, breathes promise, breathes deliverance. We're called as believers to, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. And you might be thinking, 
How on earth does any of this relate to this video that we saw earlier? Well, it relates perfectly. See, the, the church, we're not the kingdom of God, but we get to be a, a visible expression of the kingdom of God. We get to be a faithful interpreter of the kingdom of God. We get to live it out and we get to show it to others. That's what the church is. God's people that he sent into the world to display the gospel, to display the good news of the kingdom of God and how it is birthed into the world to change the world. That, that's, that's why we plant churches. That might sound like an odd phrase to you, but it's, it's wonderfully biblical to start new churches. And it's not about empire building. It's not, oh, let's open up a new franchise in Tokyo or Beirut. Krakow and Belfast it's not just about let's get a new CEO on the ground it's not about that at all it's about changing changing lives cities about seeing the poor loved and restored seeing the lost found seeing slaves redeemed seeing relationships reconciled seeing comfort come to the brokenhearted that's what the church is supposed to do again and again and again. That's what we're believing for in these cities. That's what we give our money into. I encourage you to, to give generously. Every time it comes up to these sort of things, Joe and I will have a conversation in the week and uh, we'll, 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 we'll pray and we'll come together and we'll suggest a number. And then no, normally at some point later in the week or on the day itself, one of us will say to the other, normally Joe will say to me, Let's, why don't we double it? And we'll think, oh goodness, I don't know if we can do that. But on these little adventures of faith, we've just seen God's blessing come to us, but we've, we've seen that money used to see the kingdom of God grow and extend and establish, to see there's just nothing better to give your money into. So be generous today as you consider that. See, what Jesus does is he, he steps into history in Isaiah 42, it says he will come, he'll, he'll bring forth justice to the nations. He has stepped into history to change history, to break all those cycles, all the ongoing repeats again and again. He's come to start a new story, to write a new story for humanity. He's come to overturn all of the human power that we see, and he brings his strength in weakness that actually the, the poor, those who are weak in the world, in the kingdom of God are a wonderful advantage because they already have got a, a hint, a clue of one of the secrets of the kingdom, that we find strength in our weakness. We find strength in our lack of coming to God and receiving his power. Jesus came to defeat sin, to defeat the devil, to overturn and overthrow evil forever, to send a power of forgiveness and justice into the world and how does Jesus do that he, he became the victim for us became the oppressed for him there was there was no one to comfort him in his hour of need there was no one to come and rip him down from the cross and just as how Abel's blood spoke up from the ground in Hebrews 12 it says Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel 
We were singing about it already this morning. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. It speaks a better word about the human condition that there's good news now. That injustice, evil and oppressed, Jesus has come to put an end to all those things, to bring life, to bring forgiveness, to bring healing. And he starts by bringing healing to our broken hearts. His blood speaks good news for our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we want to come to you this morning and recognize that we, can, we could look around and see so much in the world around us that makes us weep, that makes us angry, makes us frustrated, but we want to look in, first of all, at what we see in our own hearts. And we want to come to our Savior and say, would you, would you forgive me? where I've acted unjustly where I've chosen to manipulate and deceive to get my own way where I've lived with envy towards others where I've lived full of selfishness just trying to achieve my own ends regardless of who that hurts and how it hurts them when I look at just the fickleness of my life that will follow one fad one ruler and then the next we just bring all that to you this morning and say, God, would you, would you forgive us? Forgive us our sins. We thank you that in you, Jesus, we know that's wonderfully true. That you've, your blood's come to speak a better word, to wash those things away and to replace them in our lives with your holiness, with your goodness. And we want to respond in worship to you now, Jesus, and say, what a wonderful king we have. What a wonderful saviour you have. Would you come fill our hearts with your goodness and with your power to display the kingdom of God to the world around us in your name. Amen.